wonder um, how many of you here this morning have ever been tobogganing. Now, I don't mean to scare you with the mention of winter so soon, uh, and I don't mean necessarily last winter, but in your lifetime, just put up your hand. Have you ever been tobogganing? Anybody that hasn't been tobogganing? I think most of you, oh, the odd one, the odd one, okay. Well, most of you have, and you know what tobogganing is like. Um, it's, it's fun, but, but let me ask you this question. Uh, how many have ever been tobogganing on an inner tube? Uh, tubing, I guess, is the official name for it, but uh, yeah, so a few of you have, have, have done that as well. Um, I remember about 10 or 12 years ago, this, this thing called tubing was just beginning to catch on uh, at, some of the, at some of the ski hills up home, and uh, so a group of us from our church got together this one Friday night, and we were going to, going to, go, going to go down to Snow Valley and Barrie and go, and go snow tubing, and um, it was, it was right at the beginning stages of all of that, and, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of rules to it. I, I mean, you know, people had been tubing on ski hills for a while. I'm not sure it was legal to do that. Um, you know, and some people were getting hurt and whatnot. And so the ski hills decided, I guess they looked at that and said, hey, you know what, here's a way we can make some money. Why don't we legalize this thing and we'll bring it to the ski hill, make it official, and, 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 and we'll do this. But there at the beginning of stages of that, uh, there weren't a whole lot of rules, Okay. It's just the way that it was. Uh, I mean, you could basically do whatever you want. They gave you an inner tube. Uh, they dragged you to the top of the hill. And uh, how you got to the bottom, well, that was up to you. You know, you could come down in your stomach or on your back or probably on your head if you wanted to. They really didn't care uh, because there weren't a whole lot of rules to it there yet. And so uh, this night we went to Snow Valley and uh, we soon realized as a group if we would link arms, if we'd join up together, we could get a whole lot more speed out of this thing. You know, if we join like about 10 of us and we go together, you really get some momentum and uh, we just, you know, we'd go a whole lot further. Uh, but see, the thing about an inner tube, and those of you who have been on one, you, you know this, uh, with an inner tube, there's really no controlling it, right? You're not really in control of, of, of that thing. I mean, uh, once you're on it, and, and it's going, you're, you're there until it stops, right? I mean, that's the way that an inner tube works. And uh, so I remember this one time in particular, we were at Snow Valley, and there was probably 10 of us all joined together at the top of the hill, and we went firing down this hill. And uh, we soon realized that, that we weren't going to get stopped at the bottom of the ski run. I mean, we had some momentum behind this thing. And uh, beyond the bottom of the hill was this you know, this rough snow and a bit of a snowbank there, and there was some brush and scrubby trees and, and, and stuff down there. And, um, but but those, ob- those obstructions really didn't matter because the reality was we were just going. You know, there, there was no stopping this thing. That's, that's the way an inner tube is. I mean, it's ultimately in control. And when you're on it, you're, you're going until it stops. And uh, so I remember us bouncing over a bunch of rough snow and and this snowbank, and there was kind of tubes and bodies flying every which direction at the bottom of the hill. And uh, thankfully, there wasn't, you know, anyone hurt uh, too badly. And, you know, we bandaged that up, and, and, and we were okay. Interesting, after that, shortly after that, um, the ski hills began to put some rules in place around tubing. Uh, I don't know whether we were the, the start of that or not, but... Um, but, you know, still, e- even with the rules, the, the reality of riding on an inner tube uh, is that it's in control and there's no stopping it. Once you're on it, you're on it, and uh, you're headed down the hill, and, and, and it's going to go where it wants to go. Now, 
funny illustration to make a serious point. Friends, listen, the message of the church, the good news of Jesus Christ, is like that. It's like riding on an inner tube. When God's in it, there's no stopping it. Now, maybe that's a a scary thought when you're talking about inner tubes, but when it comes to the work of God, when it comes uh, right down to the church and getting the message out of actually doing and being the church and and telling the others, telling other people the good news, I don't know about you, but I find that truth really encouraging. I really do. To think that regardless of the obstacles, nothing is going to stop what God wants done or what God is doing. And I find that encouraging because... Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I I know for a fact that I just worry too much about making this thing called church work, about getting it done, about protecting it, about keeping it going, about doing it exactly right. But see, the reality is, just like an inner tube, when God's in it, when God's in the work, there's no stopping it. He's, he, he's going to get it done regardless of the obstructions, regardless of what happens, regardless of what changes may come, regardless of what roadblocks may pop up. The truth is, when God's in it, well, there's no stopping it. And so what I want to do this morning is, is really just encourage you with that amazing truth from God's Word. Now, Some of you will be glad to know that this isn't a five-point message, you know, five things you need to do, or here's seven things to a new you, or something like that. No, this, this message is none of that. This message this morning is simply a message of encouragement to the church. So why don't you get hold of a Bible and uh, get it open to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We're going there, kind of continuing along in our study of the book of Acts. Heading to Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And uh, the first thing we come to here is really a, a, a picture of what, a, of what a God is in it, therefore no stopping it community looks like. And I kind of see this as, as, as four snapshots here. Um, let me just read all of it first, and then we'll kind of get to the, the photo album part of it, all right? Um, Acts 5, beginning at verse 12 says this. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, originally I had plans of getting to verse 42 this morning. This, this whole section really fits together into one subject matter, basically reinforcing this truth that when God's in it, there's no stopping it. But I soon realized there's just too much. We're not going to get to verse 42 this morning. And so we're just going to deal with this first section, just these first five verses. We'll get to the rest of it there next week. But basically what I see here in these first five verses are what I would call four 
uh, snapshots of what a God's in it community looks like. You understand the book of Acts is really a history book of that early church, of that first church. It's the beginnings. And I believe here we have a picture, four snapshots, into what a God's in it community really looks like. Here's the first one. These people loved meeting together. They loved meeting together. Do you see it there? Verse 12, it says, All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now you say, Solomon's colonnade, what... What kind of a place is that? And uh, what that was was really a, a, a covered porch area. It had these huge uh, stone columns up either side of it. it. had a roof over it, and it was located there on the uh, eastern side of the temple in, in Jerusalem. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't right in the temple, but it was right alongside the temple, uh, overlooking a place called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, interesting, when I was in Israel, I actually... Um, got to see something of, of what this would have looked like. It wasn't in Jerusalem. This was outside in, a, in another area that they had excavated. And they dug up one of these old colonnades. And, and, and there, was this, there was this huge stone base. It, it covered about seven acres, this thing. And there was this huge stone base or kind of a walkway. And on either side of this walkway were these huge uh, stone pillars. I mean, you couldn't even get your arms around. These things, were, these things were huge. I don't know how they ever even got them standing up. It's incredible when you see some of the things that they built back then. It's, anyway, these, these huge stone columns kind of lined the street and then they would have had this roof or this this enclosure um, over top of it and so that's what it was like they had one of those in Jesus day along the eastern side of the temple there in Jerusalem in fact John 10 23 talks about Jesus walking in Solomon's colonnade and so that's that's where it was now what you really need to know about that is is this was the daily uh, meeting place or the public meeting place for the believers, for that early church, Solomon's Colonnade. Even more important than the place, I think, is to notice that word, together. They met together in Solomon's Colonnade. It's a word you see time and again throughout the book of Acts, the word together, Acts 1.14. They all met together, and they were constantly united in prayer. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Acts 2.44, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Acts 2.46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Acts 4.24, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And then we get to this verse this morning, Acts 5.12, and it says, all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Do you get it yet? Do you get it yet? You know what the key word is in the book of Acts? What is it? Let's say it. It's together. It's together. In fact, I'd encourage you to underline that verse or, or that word um, every time you come to it in the book of Acts. They were together. These people were just always together. It's one of the most vivid pictures we have of that early church is a group of people who loved meeting together. I believe it's what a God's in it, no stopping it community looks like. People love getting together. There's, there's just that sense of we, we just love hanging out together. Why? Why is that? Because listen, the one thing in the life of a true believer that's more important to us than anything is supposed to be our love for Jesus Christ. 
That's supposed to be the top thing. And in a God's in it, no stopping at community, that's what we have in common. The most important thing in our lives, we have that in common. That's why when you're on holidays and you go to a church someplace, it's always interesting to me, is as soon as you meet somebody, at least I often find it this way, it doesn't matter if you're out in the parking lot or not, you know, you go to a church and uh, you happen to meet someone and there's just that automatic sense of connection. I don't even know their name yet. But, but here comes that person and we're going into church and there's just that, that, that sense of, uh, of connection because we have something in common. Even if it's in another country, I remember um, about nine years ago now, a, a group of us went to Venezuela and um, I think we went to about five church services there over the course of, uh, of a couple of weeks. It's just like that. They, they obviously get the getting together thing, right? And... Uh, Every time we went to one of those church services, this truth, honestly, it just got me. I mean, I couldn't understand their language. I, I knew like one word in Spanish. You know, I say good morning, that was about it. It wasn't that I got the language, but you know what? Still, in that community, in that church community, in that setting, I knew what that smile was about. I knew what those hands raised uh, was about. I knew what those tears were about. I knew what that genuine hug was about because, see, we had something in common, the most important thing in our lives. Friends, listen, that's a snapshot of what a God's in it, no stopping at community looks like. It's a picture of people who loved meeting together regularly. They're just, they're just together. Well, here's another snapshot of what a God's in a community looks like. Picture number two, and this one I believe is just so important. There's a very real sense of the presence of a holy God. Notice verse 13. Interesting, it says, No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. No one else dared join them. Think about that for a second. I mean, they're in a public place here, all right? And so under this huge porch, you've got the apostles, you've got like four or 5,000 believers, maybe six or, or, or 7,000 gathered around there. You've got this huge group of people, and yet it says here, no one else dared to join them. In other words, the, the, the unbelievers, they stood at a distance. Now that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, isn't the job of the church to attract people? Isn't that one of our goals? To be a warm, loving, friendly community? To be a welcoming place? To be a place where people want to be? I mean, isn't that something we strive for here at High Hill? I mean, think about it. The number one point in our 2015 vision is improving our welcome. Isn't that a good thing? Now just to be clear, I, I believe the answer to that is clearly yes. Overwhelmingly yes. And yet it says here in this early church that no one else dared to join them. 
Now, at first glance, that that almost seems to me like a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, how can people, how how can it be that, 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 that people would be afraid to join this supposedly loving community? But friends, listen, the answer to that, the, the, the reason why they're afraid, listen, it has nothing to do with the people and it has everything to do with a holy God. You see, the reason why they were afraid is simply because there was a very real sense of the presence of a holy God in that place. And it scared them to death. I mean, just think about it. Remember what happened here last week in this place? Remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira? And there's Ananias and pretending to be a great saint, and Ananias comes in with that big smile on his face. You know, everything's just great in my life, and he's carrying this big bag in, and there's all the money, and he plops it down beside one of those stone pillars, and like five minutes, he's laying there dead. And the wife comes in, same deal. God judges her hypocrisy right there in the spot, and so they carry her out. I mean, who wouldn't be afraid of a place like that? So holy, so intense, so serious about purity, so filled with the presence of a holy God. And yet let me ask you, how many of us Ever give thought to that reality when we gather together here on a Sunday morning? That we're in the very presence of a holy God here this morning. Remember the story of a man up near Stainer a number of years ago. Actually died before I was born, but he was buried there in the sixth line cemetery. And I remember my mom and dad telling me the story of how this man would mock God in the community. Wasn't part of the church. I'm not sure why he even ended up in the cemetery there, but this guy would basically stand up in the community and he'd say, look at me. He said, if there's a God, let him kill me right now. He'd stand there for a minute or two and then he'd say, ha, see, I told you there was no God. It's all a myth. It's all nonsense. According to the story, just before this man died, he said, you know what, I'm going to prove this through my death. He said, if there is a God, let him put snakes around my tombstone after I'm dead. That way people will know. They'll know there's no God because there's not going to be any snakes there. And it'll put this myth to rest. And friends, I'll tell you, I remember as a kid at the Six Line Church, we didn't play on the south side of that church. Played on the north side all the time. We never played on the south side. You wonder why that was? Because there were snakes. There were snakes. I still know where that, that tombstone is. There was always snakes, almost always. Cutting the grass, you'd go over there and there'd be, there'd be a snake somewhere there. Loved ones, listen, that, <laughs> that story gives me chills years later. But I believe it presents something of the idea of what it says here in verse 13, 
that no one else dared to join them. Why? Because, listen, because there was a very real sense of the presence of a holy God in that gathering. And they were scared to death. Now, if you're here this morning and you sneer at God in ignorance, I believe that's one thing. That's, that's often an initial response to hearing the gospel. Nikki, Nikki Gumbo talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ yet, I, I don't want you in any way to feel, to feel judged about how you're thinking or about how you're feeling or about what you think of the Christian faith. But, but, but friends, for those of us who do claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, think about it. Do we really take this seriously? Do we really? That when we gather like this, that there's a very real sense of the presence of God in this place. Do you ever acknowledge that in your heart when you come to church on a Sunday morning? You say, well, I'm really not sure. How how would I know for sure? Well, here's a little test. If I come to church with known sin in my life, I just, I, I know it's there. And I can sing the songs or hum my way through them and I can sit through a church service without a sense of conviction, without a sense of fear, without a sense of holy awe, without a desire to get rid of that junk in my life and get right before a holy God. If I can do that week after week after week, loved one, you're playing church. You're just playing church. If that's happening in your life, then you need to do something about that. Because you're missing this picture of what the true early church looked like. Friends, listen, a God is in it community has a sense of the presence of a holy God in that place. And these non-believers, they recognize that and it caused them to stand at a distance. But then notice this third snapshot. It's a little more pleasant one. This is a picture of those ones who dared not join them actually taking that step of actually crossing the street and embracing Jesus Christ by faith. Notice verse 14. It says, nevertheless, in other words, even though you know, they crossed the street with fear and trembling in many ways, still, nevertheless, uh, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, and were added to their number. It's picture number three, and it's a snapshot of a numerically growing community. You know, it's interesting as you read through the book of Acts, this thing called the community of believers, uh, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It just keeps growing as you, as you get through it. Interesting to me that Luke initially, uh, Luke was the writer of the book of Acts. He's, he's writing this historical account. Uh, interesting to me that initially he's trying to keep track of the numbers here. Uh, Acts 1.13, he, he, he talks about uh, 11 people meeting in the upper room. A couple of verses later, Acts 1.15, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, brackets, a group numbering about 120. So there's Luke and he's, you know, he's got about 120 there. And then you get to Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and it says in verse 41 that uh, those who accepted his message and were baptized, uh, uh, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So now we're up to like 3,120 people or something like that. A few verses later, it says, the Lord added to their number daily 
those who were being saved. Then you get to Acts 3. Uh, Peter and John are out telling the people uh, about Jesus again. They get arrested by the, the religious leaders of the day. And yet Acts 4, 4 there, it says, uh, But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men... Uh, not going to count the women and children. Too many, too many. I'm just going to count the men. Uh, the number of men uh, grew to about 5,000. Now that's the men, all right? So you include women and children in that. I mean, this is getting to be a fairly large group. I don't know if he's got the clipboard thing happening or how he's counting, but this is, this is, this is uh, getting to be a big group. And, and then you get to where we are today, and, and Luke's like, you know what? I, I give up. I, I give up trying to keep track of the number anymore. I just flat out, I'm not counting uh, anymore. From now on, it's just, it's just more and more. It's just more and more. It's just more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Friends, listen, the early church was a numerically growing community. It just flat out was. It just was. There's no denying that, no getting around it. God expects his church to be growing. You ever wonder what we're to be doing exactly as a church? What our, what our priorities should be? What should our focus be? What should we really be about? Here it is, right here. Bottom line, the church is to be growing. Regardless of how many there are, there needs to be more. If it's full, you build something bigger, you start something else, there needs to be more. I mean, that's what Jesus said, Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. And you can't make disciples until first they start following. I mean, that's where the initial point begins. It's our mission statement here at Heise Hill. To make fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. What are we about? Let's read that together. What are we about? What's our mission statement? To make fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, listen. That is the primary purpose of the church. It's to tell people the good news, to get the word out. Yeah, we're to be growing in Christ-likeness. Yeah, we're to be growing in our knowledge of God's word. Yeah, we're to be meeting together and encouraging one another. But friends, listen, all of that is for one purpose. The reason that God keeps us on this earth, John MacArthur says, the one thing that we can't do better in heaven, why doesn't he take us up there? We could grow in knowledge up there. We could meet together up there. We could grow in Christ-likeness up there. But listen, the one thing that we can't do up there is tell others the good news. It's the one task. And it needs to be a priority. Telling others the good news. I so appreciated one of the speakers at the uh, leadership summit a couple of weeks back. And uh, he likened the church to a football team. And he pointed out how good we are in the huddle. We come to church week after week and we, we love to huddle. We love getting together and we love talking game plans and strategy and figuring out what this verse means and figuring out what that verse means. But, but what happens all too often is that we forget the reason why we got in the huddle was it so we could effectively play the game. And what happens all too often is that we get comfortable in that huddle and we never make it to the field. The huddle is the preparation for the game. What this is this morning is preparation for the game. In this early church, they were on the field. Interesting to me, isn't it, that the field was where they regularly met. That's interesting to me. 
on the field was where they regularly met. It's where they did church. Yeah, they still got together and they did their Bible studies in homes. They did. But regularly they met in Solomon's colonnade. They met in a public place. And they loved meeting together. And there was a sense of God's presence there. And they were growing numerically. One of the key reasons for that is what this last picture is about. And it's a picture of the power of God at work. Changing lives. Changing lives. Key phrase. Do you see it there? The idea really begins there at the top of verse 12. It says, The apostles performed uh, many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And then that idea continues at verse 15. If you want to put brackets in there after that first phrase in, in verse 12, down to the beginning of verse 15, that's all a, a, a paraphrase there. Uh, at the beginning of uh, uh, verse 15, it says, as a result, in other words, because the apostles were performing these miracles, um, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and they laid them on beds and mats. Uh, so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Now, interesting, those two words, uh, beds and mats. In the Greek, um, actually two different words. And uh, the, the words for bed there actually means a, a cot or a couch. Now, that would be the wealthy in society. That would be the people that had money. They would come on a bed or a mat, or a bed or a, or a cot. But the mats was for the, was for the poor people. That was like a straw mattress. And so, in other words, Luke wants to make it clear to us here that, that, that there was kind of two different groups of, of, of people coming to be healed. There was rich and, and there was poor. You see, friends, that when it comes to the power of God at work changing lives, financial uh, means m- makes no difference. That status doesn't count. And, and here it was rich and poor, and, and, and they were just coming. And it says, crowds uh, gathered also from around the towns, around Jerusalem there, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And all of them, all of them were healed. Now also important to notice here when it comes to uh, physical healings, notice who was doing it here. Notice who was doing it. It says in verse 12, the apostles. Verse 15 there, it mentions uh, more specifically Peter. It talks about his shadow. Now I'm not sure Peter's shadow actually brought healing to anyone. It was actually superstition back then that people's shadows had a special power in them, mysterious. We do know in Acts 19.12 that Paul's uh, handkerchiefs were healing people. So maybe Peter's shadow did as well. Bottom line, I, I don't know for sure. But the reality is God was at work through the apostles to do the healing. It doesn't anywhere talk about ordinary believers going around healing people. It doesn't talk about that. No, it was the apostles, the apostles that were doing this. Now, I think that's important in a day when we have these charlatans on late-night television saying, send me $100 and I'll send you the the, the hanky that'll heal whatever cures whatever ails you. That's important to recognize that. God's model for healing today is James 5, the prayer of the elders. That's his model. And after we pray, we leave the results with God. In the book of Acts... It's a select group of people 
that are doing the healing. That's important. But see, that doesn't change the fact that the power of God is still at work today, changing lives. You think about it, to think that God can take someone that, as ACDC so eloquently talks about, you know, they're on the highway to hell, and take that person and turn them around and put their life on a new course, that's a picture of what a God's in a community looks like. It's a place where lives are being changed. And friends, when we have that, when we really surrender ourselves completely to God, and we allow Him to make us into the people that He wants us to be, into the church, into that biblical community that He so wants us to be, when we have that, when we have that, I believe it's like riding on an inner tube. When we have that, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. And you're going to see that so clearly next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the picture that we see here this morning of that beginning church, that ecclesia, the early workings of the biblical community. And Lord, we get a bit of a picture of of what that looked like. Lord, I pray as we read through these opening chapters of the book of Acts that, that you would give each one of us a desire to be like that. Lord, give us a hunger to be the community that you want us to be. A community where we see people coming to faith. A community that loves getting together. A community where you're at work community where there's a real sense of your presence. And Lord, in so many ways, we bring that sense of your presence with us because your word says your Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. And as believers, when we come, you're in us. We bring your, your, your presence to this place. And Lord, I pray that we would be serious about that. We would be serious about dealing with sin in our lives. And we would have a longing to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.